morning, everybody. Hey, anybody ready for church? You ready? Let's go. Come on. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us online. Hey, before we get into the series for today, just a quick commercial for the next few weeks. Um, some of you that were around 18 months ago know we launched into this journey called Beyond, just this journey of increased generosity in order to multiply kingdom impact. And uh, we launched it just as COVID hit, but we felt like it was time to take new ground, not to hold our ground. So we moved forward and we have seen God do some amazing things. And so we want to take a few weeks just to talk about the stories and the life change that we've seen happen, um, both locally, but also globally, but also for people who may not have been around and you've joined us over the last year because we have a lot of new people, just to kind of catch you up to speed a little bit about who we are and what God's been up to. And then the third week of the series, we're going to sponsor every child from the Compassion Project that we started down in Chinandegua, Nicaragua. Amen? And so, yeah, you should get excited about that, right? Um, because we're going to have a little over 200 kids that we're going to sponsor. And so really excited about that. So you don't want to miss out um, and just be glad proud that you're part of a church that's uh, seeing God do some uh, awesome things and, and restored marriages and seeing lives changed and just also not just here but also uh, globally as we just continue the outreach to make a global footprint that God has given us. But today we are finishing up our series called Bricklayers. Let me hear you say Bricklayers. Bricklayers. I mean I, I'm sad to see it over aren't you? Um, it's a little bit sad, but, but over the course of the series, I have asked a question every single week. And for some people, maybe you're even a little tired of the question. Uh, maybe it's a little been a little frustrating. Hopefully it's been challenging for you. And the question is simply this, what great work are you doing? What great work are you doing? Or what great work am I doing? Just personalize it. And if you had to look at your life, look at your decisions, look at your days, look at your dollars, look at your conversations, look at your relationships. Like what, what is that building? What's the outcome of that? What is the long-term play for that? Now we've been looking at it through the eyes of a guy named Nehemiah. And we've been looking at his memoir in the Bible. Now, Nehemiah was an incredible leader in the Bible. Nehemiah was one of those guys that would have had a TED Talk uh, that would have had, you know, 15, 20 million views. He would have had a podcast with more followers than Joe Rogan. He would have written a book. He'd have been on the circuit because of all the great leadership principles that we find in the book of Nehemiah. Now, just as a kind of a Cliff Notes version of where we've been, Nehemiah was charged by God to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had a wall around it that protected it from its enemies, but it also gave it its identity. And so the wall had been broken down by its enemies so that they were helpless and at risk. So Nehemiah is charged by God to leave the comfort of the job that he had working for the king. And he goes and he rebuilds and leads the people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And one of Nehemiah's great phrases, which is one that we should all adopt, says this, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Had that kind of, that kind of passion, that kind of clarity, that kind of understanding of the great work that he was doing. He was, yeah, exactly. He wasn't too busy, man. He was, he was focused on what he was going to do. And so, so I think for all of us in the room, man, we all want to do a work worthy of eternity. Amen. Like there's something built in all of us, even if we can't articulate it many days, is that we want our lives to matter. We want to know that we did the thing that we were here to do. Whatever that thing is, we want to know. We want to be remembered. We want to be remembered 
for something more than just the day-to-day grind of life. Nehemiah, in this story, he actually closes out the very last verse of his, of his um, memoir says this, remember me, O God, for good. And I think we all want to be remembered for good. Have you ever noticed the things about people that you remember? Like the things about people that you remember or the things that you forget? I think about maybe your parents. Maybe you had some great parents. I just want you to think about what you remember about them. Now, now probably for most of you, your mind didn't immediately go to remember what they were wearing September 14th, 1979, right? You didn't go to what y'all have for dinner. You didn't go for anything like that. You went to some character qualities, some ways they cared for you, maybe some ways they challenged you, maybe some ways they were just there for you. There are some things about people that we remember. What will you be remembered for? Right? How do you want to be remembered? You know, there's three, there's three kinds of virtues that you'll be remembered for. One is what we call resume virtues, right? Your resume virtues. We spend a lot of time building our resume, don't we? We spend a lot of time figuring out, is it in the right format? Do I have the right things on there? Our students know what that's about. You're building your resume, right? So you can get into college, right? Because you want to go to Harvard. Am I wrong? Um, <laughs> somebody's like, God, no. Um, but we, we build our resume and it's the external things that we achieve, that we accomplish. It's our vocation. It's our bank account. It's our, uh, the home that we live in. And we build our resume. Now, now the, the second kind of resume that you can, or excuse me, the second kind of virtues that you can build is what you'll call eulogy virtues. Let me hear everybody say eulogy, eulogy, because you're going to have one one day. Come on. We don't like to think about it, but you're going to have a eulogy one day. And, and there's going to be a, people who stand up and say things about what they remember about you. You know this? And you actually have some input into that. And it's called your life. It's called your character. It's called your impact on people. And you will have a eulogy said over you when you die. And what will people remember about you? But that's not even the most important one. The most important one is our eternity virtues. Man, what will our life say in eternity? How will we be remembered in eternity? Now, here's the irony of that. If you focus on your eternity virtues, guess what? Your eulogy will be amazing. And your resume will be lifelong, everlasting. But if you focus on your resume, guess what? You probably won't get the other two. So what does it look like to focus on our eternity, on being remembered for the things that are actually going to last? You know, we need to know what matters to God to be remembered by God. We need to know what matters to God to be remembered by God. Like some of you are doing that. Some of you are living lives worthy of eternity. And you're investing in people, you're generous with your time and with your money, and you serve others. How is it that you want to be remembered? And we're going to look at Nehemiah and how he wants to be remembered. He says it three different times in the part of the story that we're going to look at today. So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. I'll start out in verse four, kind of work my way right down through the story and look at three different ways Nehemiah wants to be remembered. Now, just to catch us up to where we are in the story, Nehemiah come back and the wall was built and he had, he had gone back to the king's house because he worked for the king. He had been out of town he had, for 12 years. Now he comes back to Jerusalem to kind of survey what's happened with his great work. 
Have you, ever, have you ever been away from home for a while and you came back and things were different? Like how many of you went to college, you came back and your room was gone, right? Like, like how many of you went to college, you came back and your parents had moved and didn't tell you? You know, things change. Things change. And Nehemiah is going to find some things that changed and he is not happy about it. Excuse me, verse 4. It says, now before this, meaning after he'd come back, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. So, so priests in the Bible, as you know, kind of, they, they oversee the worship. They oversee the temple, the house of God. There's also another group of people called Levites. Let me hear you say Levites. Levites. Now, Levites worked in the temple too. They were responsible for everything that went in and out of the temple. They were religious leaders as well, but they weren't necessarily priests, but they were kind of doing the work and they were in charge of the temple, the day-to-day operations. That's going to be important in a second. So it says that Eliashib, the priest, was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Now, remember, Tobiah, from, an early, from a few weeks ago, Tobiah was one of the enemies of Nehemiah. He had tried to distract Nehemiah from rebuilding the wall. And so now we find that he's related to the priest. And here's what the priest did, Eliashib. It says he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priest. While this was taking place, I, meaning Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was angry, and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Can you say Jerry Springer? He just threw everything out in the street by himself. Now, why was this so crucial? Because there was a room, kind of a warehouse room, that housed everything that the Levites needed to carry on the work of the temple, to carry on work in the house of God. And Tobiah had removed all that so that the Levites weren't able to keep the functioning of the temple going. They couldn't keep up the worship of God. So Nehemiah says, I'm having none of this. And he throws him out. Nehemiah has a little bit of a temper. Now let's jump down into verse 11. It says, so I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? You see, if we're not careful, things can creep in. It shouldn't be there. Can begin to think of some, some ways to operate that shouldn't happen, that will forsake the actual thing that we're gathered together to do. And so Nehemiah is so clear that he wasn't just building a wall. He wasn't just putting some, stacking some bricks so that enemies couldn't get over. He was rebuilding a culture of worship and putting God at the center again. He knew so much more. He was building so much more than just a wall. It says, I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. I pointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute their brothers. Now here we see the first remember. He says this, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. 
So right here we see the first thing that Nehemiah wants to be remembered for. He wants to be remembered for the things that he had done for the house of God and for the service of God. Now on the surface, when he says remember, there's this potential that it could be like he's bragging about himself. It's like, look what I did. He's bragging about his resume. But that's not what he's doing. He's actually approaching God in humility, saying, God, remember me. I did the things you asked me to do. God, recognize me. God, reward me based on the things that I did for you, not for myself. And that's what he's talking about, being remembered for. It's actually a request born out of humility. And he wants to be remembered for that. Hey, do you remember like middle school when we were about to go into high school? They would say, hey, from now on, everything goes on your permanent record. You remember this? The permanent record, the dreaded permanent record that it was going to always hang over our head. It's like the grades you get next year, they're going to be on your permanent record. Oh, really? What I make in ninth grade algebra? Come on. Like nobody knows. I got an A, I'm sure. But, um, <laughs> and, and then if you misbehaved or you got sent to the principal's office, ah, if you do this next year, we're going to put this on your permanent record. And we all know it wasn't permanent because nobody even knows where those are now. Now the internet's a little more permanent. If we're just being honest, y'all should learn that. But this is permanent. Like what God remembers you for, that, that, that's permanent. That's going to last a long time. And we better be sure we're shooting at the right target. We better be sure we, we know what a win is and what success is. It reminds me of the story of the 2004 Olympics. There was a guy named Matt Emmons. He was from England. He was one of the best sharpshooters in the country at the time. And he finds himself in a competition that had three different rounds. The first round, he was sh shooting uh, on it from his stomach. The second round, he shot from one knee. And the third round, he shot standing up. Well, the first two rounds, he scored so well that he only needed a mediocre score to actually, on his third shot to actually win the gold medal in the Olympic Games. Just like below average. All he had to do was get close. So he rears back, pulls his gun up, takes a deep breath, fires, and it looks like he hit the bullseye. But the bell didn't go off saying that he'd scored. And tragically, he had shot at the target that was in the other lane. And he lost any medal. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll win at some things that don't matter. We'll be successful at things that actually won't carry us into the future. Now, what we see here, and it's what we've seen every week in the book of Nehemiah, is that the, Nehemiah is just a picture of Jesus, that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. And there's something that Jesus said he was going to build in the book of Matthew, you see, Jesus, when he asked Peter, you guys, who all knows who Peter is? Everybody know Peter? Some of you guys know Peter. Peter was a follower of Jesus. He was one of the top three disciples, the closest to Jesus, spent the most time with Jesus, carried the mission of Jesus forward after his death. He asked, Jesus asked Peter kind of early on in ministry, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Like Peter understood what Jesus came to do and what he came to establish. And so Jesus says, well said. And I'll tell you that your name is now Peter, meaning big rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. So Jesus here says, I will build. So this is what Jesus is building. So the picture of the temple in the Old Testament now moves to the church in the New Testament. Because that's what Jesus is building. Jesus is building his church. It's most important. It's most valuable. It's what carries the message. It's what has stood the test of time. This is the great work that we do. 
is that we do the work that Jesus was doing and we build the church that Jesus is building. Technically, obviously, we're just helping. But the church is the people of God working in the power of God to experience the presence of God. Now, now a couple of analogies around church, just to highlight how important this is and how we can never lose sight of that. You know, the first thing we see, or one of the images that we see in the Bible is that the church is called the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so what that means is that the church, God's people, but also, also, also God's mission is God has firmly planted his affection on the church because that's what it means to be married. So if you're a husband here and your, your wife is to be the object of your affection, like if you're a single dude here, and you're thinking about getting married, when you do, you need to be sure that your wife is the object of your affection. So there's certain things that means like practically speaking in a marriage. So for instance, um, one of the things that I do is like when my wife walks in a room, I just stand up, right? Just show her some honor, just to show her some, some appreciation, just to show that she's the object of my affection. Like outside of Jesus, the, my bride is the object of my affection. Another thing for husbands that we should recognize is that our wives... Man, they're our standard of beauty. Like whoever our wife is, what she looks like, who she is, like that is our standard. And there is no need to look anywhere else. Amen, somebody? Like there is no need to adopt a different standard of beauty. I don't have to look at pictures on the internet or videos. I don't have to get, look at magazines. I don't have to sneak peeks at women at the gym. Because my wife is what? My standard of beauty. She's the object of my affection. Now, that was just a little marriage discipleship for you. Just so you know, it was a little side note, a little extra. That was free. Um, but that is, man, that is the church. The church is the object of Jesus' affection. And the second thing, it is the object of his expectation and mission. You may remember in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus gives the great commission for the church. And Jesus says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, what can happen is that we begin to think of church as just kind of maybe it's a certain time. We go, hey, I go 1115, 13540, Highway 9 North. It's called Stone Creek Church. And we kind of think of it as this time and this gathering. And certainly that's part of it. Gathering is really important. And I think when we understand how much Jesus values the gathering together, we would do that. But, but it's more than that. We gather so that we can go on mission. Amen? Like we gather here so we can impact the world. This is the mission that God has given us. Like one of the, one of the downsides to what's happened in our understanding of church is it kind of moves into a customer and consumer mindset. And, and you know what I'm talking about because you live in North Atlanta. We, we, we all know, we get this, we understand this. But originally, the word for church literally meant called out ones. Not people who just came together in a holy huddle, but people who were called out and moved to the outskirts, moved to reach people, moved to do some things. Like one of our cultural values is equipping over entertaining. Equipping over entertaining. Now, there's nothing technically wrong with entertaining it just means you kept somebody's attention and uh, you know I think some days I'm entertaining some days not so much 
But hopefully you always see that there's equipping, that there's a certain way we're supposed to live. There are certain things that we're supposed to do, that our hearts are supposed to be being transformed to look like Jesus, that we should be changed on a daily basis. And that when we come on Sunday, we should understand some things, no matter where we are on the spiritual spectrum. Like if you're new and just figuring out faith, we'd love for you to understand more about who Jesus is. And that's going to be the movement for you. If you already know Jesus, what does it look to, to wrap my life around him, to let my mind be um, conformed to what he wants for me. And that's what it means to equipping over entertaining. So when we gather, there's so much more going on than just building a wall, than just having services. So think about this. When you show up, when you show up for worship, when you show up for worship, sometimes you may show up and be like, I hope it's good today. Or you may, has anybody ever thought this? Have you ever woken up and thought, I don't feel like going today. Anybody ever thought that about going to church? Nobody else will admit it. This is the, ho- <laughs> this is the holy section over here. <clears throat> I thought about it twice this morning. Um, but, but we know when we, when we have that mindset, what happens is we just begin to think about, hey, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? But do you know that maybe there's something that you offer and bring to someone else? Like when you show up to worship, you don't know what people have gone through. I mean, you don't know what struggle they're having. And if you did know and you were able to see them worship, that would be a testimony of the power and the presence of God in your life. So when we worship, we're not, we're not just building a wall and we're seeing lives change. Hey, when you volunteer, you're not just giving your time. And when you w- wave someone into a parking spot, you're not just helping them have a good experience so they don't get angry at the traffic in the parking lot. Man, you're, you're providing an opportunity to experience hope. That someone can walk on this property with difficulties in their life and struggles and be able to experience God in a way that will change their heart. Like if you're back there holding babies in the 930 service, first of all, God bless you. You're awesome. But you're not just holding babies and changing diapers. Man, man, you're giving space for parents to encounter something that could radically change their future. You know, when you greet people out here at these doors, you're not just being there to be a friendly face and smile as awesome as that is. Man, but you're breaking down barriers for people to be able to come in and to experience the living God. Like when you give your dollars, you're not just being generous so you can feel better and because the church needs it. Man, you're giving part of your life so someone else can have life. Man, this is the work of the church. Let me ask you, man, what will God remember about your work for his house? What will God remember about your work for his house? Hey, and make no mistake about it. Man, God has given the message of hope to nobody else. He hasn't given it to a private Christian school. He hasn't given it to a charity. He hasn't given it to your 501c3. God has given that mission to the church. It is the most important. It is fundamental. And it is what we will be remembered for. It is an eternity value that we should all be sure that we are building that work, that great work to build God's house. So we jump on, we continue on, verse 15. Nehemiah says this, he says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Now, anytime in the Bible when you see something happen on the Sabbath that isn't worship to God, it's going to be a bad day. 
Okay, it's going to be bad because you were not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. So, and I'll, I'm going to unpack all that. It says, they were working, treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. So Nehemiah told them, this is bad. Don't do this. He goes on down in verse 19. He says, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors would be shut and I gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. In other words, they weren't going to be able to get their stuff into the, into, the, into the city to sell and to do work on the Sabbath because he's going to shut them outside. I stationed some of my servants at the gates and no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why are you lodging outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Translated, we're going to throw hands at each other because I'm going to take you out. Like Nehemiah is bad to the bone. Since from that time, <clears throat> they did not come in on the Sabbath because they were scared. Uh, he was MMA before MMA was cool. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves. Come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then here's the second thing he says. Remember this also in my favor, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So Nehemiah's restoration of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended to honor God. So Nehemiah restores the people to honoring God on the Sabbath. This was part of his great work. And this is, this is part of the great work that God calls us to you know, we know that keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, one of the big ten that's given in the, in the Old Testament for two reasons. Number one, we see that God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh day. That God was, he was able to get his work done in six days and he rested on the seventh day. So he's built into creation this idea of rest, of stopping what you're doing. Now, the second thing that, it, that we kind of miss sometimes about the Sabbath is that the nation of Israel, right before they got the Ten Commandments, they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. What did they do every day of their life? They worked. Sun up to sundown. They worked seven days a week. If they were, die, if they were to die kind of on their way to work or in the path of work, they just kicked their body to the side and they kept working. So what God did when he gave the Ten Commandments, when they got out of slavery, <clears throat> as he told them that they should rest. And why is it that so many of us have become enslaved to busyness? Why, why is it? Think about this for a second. There's Ten Commandments. We keep the other nine, but not this one. You probably hadn't killed anybody today lied, you know it's wrong even if you did it, committed adultery, lusted, taken the Lord's name in vain, created a graven image to worship God. We could go through the list of the other nine. We have kept all of them, but this one, we feel like it's optional. And we wonder why we're so tired because we have no rest. You know, on a couple of levels, number one, our bodies need rest, don't they? Man, I mean, our bodies need rest. Time is a gift from God and our bodies need rest. How many of you have ever fallen asleep doing something important? How many of you have ever fallen asleep in class, right? How many of you have ever fallen asleep on a conference call in the afternoon after you had a heavy lunch? Come on. How many of you have ever fallen asleep while driving? 
right? Isn't that the best sleep you ever got? Because when you wake up, you are fully awake. So you know you're rested. And we've all fallen asleep doing something important because our body just shuts down. In 1967, there was a Senate subcommittee that reported that by 1985, in 18 years, we would have, the problem was going to be our leisure time. That the average American would work 20 hours a week, 27 weeks a year. What happened? You know what happened? It's called the iPhone. That's what happened. The advancement of technology. And why is it that we have all these creature comforts and all these productivity tools, yet it feels like we have less time. We have less time. C.S. Lewis, in writing Screwtape Letters, um, which is this fable about demons and Christians, and it's, if you haven't read it, you should. But, but, but here's this conversation that happens in Screwtape Letters. The demons are saying this, we can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate relationship with Jesus. Once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. And one of them said, what do we do? And Satan said this, keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. Feels like that came true. That we have so much that keeps us busy You know, the Chinese word for busyness is two characters, heart and kill, because that's what busyness does. And we're busy building resume virtues. That's what we spend our time doing. How many times have you asked somebody, hey, man, what's going on? How you doing? I'm so busy. And if you don't say you're busy, you feel guilty, don't you? Like, I'm just so busy. And rather than a confession of how important we are when we say I'm busy, it actually is a confession of a sinful mindset. Because we're breaking, we're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. We're breaking something that is actually intended for our good. Hey, your body needs rest. The reason why we experience so much anxiety and depression, man, the reason why we always feel like there's something else to do is we're just trying to fill our schedule with resume virtues. There's always one more team to join. There's one more AP class to take. You know, what's going to happen if your five-year-old doesn't learn calculus by the first grade? And we are so busy and we bought into this lie of achievement and accomplishment. Now, it doesn't mean we don't need to work hard. You should rest after you work hard. As a matter of fact, the problem with us is we don't rest, we recover. And we should work from a place of internal rest, not rest from work. Because when you're resting from work, you're recovering. But we should work hard. Man, our, our employers should know that we're the best employee. We're always going to get it done. We're always going to be there. We're going to make it happen because we work so well, because we rest so well. And this is a call of God on our lives. And here's the thing about rest. What rest communicates to the world is that I trust God. What rest communicates to God is that I trust God. I trust God. Rest and trust are tied together. That's why it's one of the Ten Commandments, is that rest is about using my time to display my trust. And trust is all about worship, all about worship. And So so you, you need to figure out some time in your schedule where you stop what you're doing, you focus your attention and reorient and recalibrate around God. And I get we're in a, we're in a different culture than, than, the, than the Bible. But, but, but what about this? 
Don't you know, don't you know some companies that are closed on Sunday? What's the one you know of? And there's more, right? There's more. Do you guys remember a time when everything was closed on Sunday? Some of you older people in the crowd, yeah. You remember Blue Laws? Anybody remember Blue Laws? Okay, Blue Laws were these laws on the books of certain things you couldn't buy or sell on Sunday. Like gas used to be a blue, you couldn't buy gas on a Sunday. I discovered Blue Laws when I was 16, but we were getting ready for a church on a Sunday morning and my mom says, hey, I need you to go buy me some pantyhose. Anybody even remember what pantyhose are? <laughs> now, I just want you to imagine you're a 16 year old boy and your mom has asked you to go and buy pantyhose at the grocery store. Legs, and they were in the egg, you remember that? All right, you, you guys be grateful. That's all I can tell you, be grateful. So I go to the grocery store to buy legs. The color I needed to get, nude, only making the problem worse. And I go and find them at the Kroger. I go check out and you know what they tell me? I can't buy them because it's a blue law that you can't buy pantyhose. I'm already embarrassed. And I just crawled right under the counter and stayed there all day long. <laughs> blue laws. Because we, there used to be this thing in our culture where we understood how important rest was because it indicated trust. Now watch how this connects to Jesus. Over in the book of Matthew, verse 11, is uh, Jesus' teaching. In verse 11, he says this, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul for my yoke is easy my burden is light see Jesus came that we could have this soul rest and this satisfaction when we wake up that, our, that we did the best we could do that we worked hard but the results were up to God that we don't have to achieve and earn and be good people to approve ourselves to God that God had already, has already done the hard work in Jesus, that we are completely forgiven of sin. We are granted a new life simply through the gospel of Jesus, that we can have peace with God and we don't have to have that inner turmoil that runs us ragged and causes us health problems and makes us feel like we're uh, defective in any way. Man, that we can have margin in our life, which is just the distance between our load and our limit, that we can have margin to operate so that when somebody does call us and has a need, we can meet it. So that when somebody does something and needs something for us to do something for them, we can pay for it. That's what margin is. And this is what it means to have peace in your soul. Man, what, what will God remember about your work to honor him? Like, what will God remember about your days and how they honored him? What will God remember about the times you intentionally took opportunity to rest, even when it didn't seem like it was going to be efficient and you had so much to do? You're sitting next to people who have a lot to do, but you're also sitting next to people who get rest when they need it. And that's every single week. Then Nehemiah closes out in verse 13, excuse me, in verse 31, when he says, remember me, oh my God for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. You know, the, the, the word that's used right there for good actually is used over in the very beginning of the Bible when God creates heaven and earth. It says that God created light 
And then he says, it is good. So the implication here that Nehemiah is asking for is that God would shine a light on his work. And God will. His work for God's house and his work for God's honor. And it will never be forgotten because God's light is shining on it. And the same is true for us. These are the two things that we want to be remembered for that will last eternity. Man, so much is going to be forgotten by people. So much of the good things that you've done for people or helped people, man, it's going to be forgotten by people. They've already forgotten to say thank you. They already forgot to write you a note. Guess who hasn't forgotten? God. Because he's shining his light on it. Is your life full of resume values? Is that what you've been working for? As you just examine the things you've been doing, the way you spend your time, are you just building your resume? Are you building, are you building eternity? Is God going to remember you for the eternal work that you've done? You know, one of the things every couple of years, I read this fable that really helps to uh, remind us of what we should be about. And as a church, but also as individuals. And so I'm going to take a few minutes today just, just to read this and just place yourself in this story. And remember, it's a, it's a fable. It's the imagery of the church. And just how does this, uh, where, where do you find yourself in this story? <clears throat> this is on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur. You know anybody's been shipwrecked? Have you been shipwrecked before? There was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut. There was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the area wanted to be associated with the station and they gave their time, their money, and effort to support the work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station, it grew. And some of these new members of the station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped so they felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds. They put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were not interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decoration, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-trowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful club was in chaos. Immediately, the property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club where victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership because most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. A small number of members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose. And they pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. The small group's members were voted down and told if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. 
And as the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes as the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. And the sad thing is that shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the passengers drown. I think you're picking up what I'm putting down. If you're still breathing, you have yet to do your greatest work. Let's never never lose sight of that. Because there are people out there who need hope, who are drowning. And our mission, our mission is to take care of the house of God for the honor of God, to help people who are drowning. Let's pray together. God, thanks for Nehemiah and what a great couple of months that we've had to be able to pray and to fast and to think about our lives and our legacy. God, to think about what it's going to look like in eternity. God, to evaluate our decisions and our dollars and our days based on our resume or our eulogy or eternity, God. And Lord, I pray that we would just take it seriously, Lord, that Even as we gather today, God, we just really hear from you. You would press in our hearts the burden that you have for people, the mission that you have for people. And God, that we be a church that never loses sight of the grand mission that you've given us to elevate the name of Jesus, to see people come to know you, and to see people restored back to what you created them to be. God, that we would never we'd never lose sight of people who are drowning, who are shipwrecked, or people who are in danger of crashing on the rocks. And God, that we would realize that the church is the hope of the world. It's not in our government, God knows. It's not in our economy. Man, it's not in our education system or our health care, God. It is in the church. You are the hope of the world, God, that you've given us to carry. And so, Lord, I pray for even for today, God, that you would shift our hearts in our thinking, shift my heart, shift our hearts in thinking how we think about what we do, and the mission that we have, God, that we would just maintain crystal clarity, just a tenacity that the mission can never be torn from our hands, God. And when you come back, you'll remember us for good, Lord, and the things that we did for your house and for your honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. I'm going to ask you now, just up under your chair, you have a brick. And you know that when we started this series, we wrote five different things that we prayed for on these bricks. We wrote sacrificial generosity we were going to pray for sacrificial generosity man for people to give so that the mission could go forward we we pray for five campuses in five years we pray for people to come to know Jesus day by day every single day that we'd see people begin to know him and come uh, and, and get baptized that we would just see a glimpse of the glory of God just understanding a little bit more about his majesty and glory but also a kingdom culture and that people would just get connected in that people would be in groups, that people would serve, that they would realize that we're building something bigger than just uh, a Sunday morning worship event. Uh, but today what I want us to do is just as we close out in worship is just to take a moment, like what, what is your great work? Like what is your great work for God's house? What is your great work for God's honor? As you think about that, you may begin writing it. 
You know, for some of you, maybe it is serving. For some of you, maybe it's inviting a neighbor. And for some of you, maybe it's just being more aware of that. For some of you, it's multiplying your life in others. It's being more generous. Uh, for some, it's just finally making a decision you're going to care. You know, for some people, maybe it's just stepping out of your comfort zone to be more a part of what's happening on a regular basis. And I have a feeling you probably, you probably already know where God's leading and pushing you. So I'm going to invite you just to write that down. And then we're going we're gonna to stand and worship. So grab your brick, grab your pen, and let's write that down. God, you've given us a great work to do. And Lord, just think about the things that we've been praying for, the lives that you've changed, the way that we have been able to step into the future. God, the way that you have helped us to be able to see you differently. God, I pray that you just show us what that great work might be. Lord, for some, it might just be inviting a neighbor. Lord, it may be just walking over to their neighbor and saying hello and meeting them for the first time, God. It may be showing up at the hospital or it may be a 3 a.m. phone call to help someone navigate a difficult time. God, it may be leading their family better to know you, to wrap their lives around you and to quit building their resumes as much as they are building the kingdom, God. Lord, whatever it might be, God, this would just be a time we could just commit to you in Jesus' name. Amen.